Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. With you, as always, is Bob, live in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board. On tonight's special investigative Bobcast, we dive into the urban legend of the Catman as it relates to Hart's Lane and the surrounding woods by the Schuylkill River in Conshohocken. To understand this urban legend, we will have to divide the podcast up into sections to get a better understanding of the facts, myths, and macabre that focus on the legend of the Catman. I first heard about the Catman from my father when I was just a little boy. One day after school, he picked me up, and instead of going home, we went on a drive down Hart's Lane. We came to a spray-painted bridge with local graffiti tags. He told me that this is where the Catman appears at night. All we had to do was honk our horn three times, turn off our car lights, and the Catman would appear. Perhaps he might jump on our roof. Perhaps he might leave his hook on our side view mirror. My imagination went wild. I became asphyxiated with the imagery of the Catman. Our story starts in 1959. The average cost of a new house was $12,000. The average yearly wage was $5,000. The cost of a gallon of gasoline was 25 cents. The average cost of a new car was $2,000. A movie ticket will cost you a buck, a loaf of bread 20 cents, and you could buy yourself a brand new Kodak movie camera for $67.50. On November 18, 1959, the religious epic and award-winning film Ben-Hur premieres. The film starred actor Charlton Heston and was directed by William Wyler. At the time of its production, the movie had the largest budget of any movie ever made, with an estimated $15.9 million spent. It also had some of the largest sets created for its time. Mattel's Barbie doll is launched. Xerox launches its first commercial printer. Popular music in 1959 included Doris Day, Frank Sinatra, Connie Francis, Jim Reeves, Cliff Richard, and Ella Fitzgerald. Given that everybody's usually staring at a screen, this is an important fact. In 1959, the first television show to be broadcast in color premieres on NBC. It's Bonanza. U.S. President Eisenhower signs the Hawaii Admission Act into law, and Hawaii becomes the 50th state in the United States of America. Our story begins in Kunchahak in 1959, Montgomery County, and involves a man named Elmo Smith. He was 39 years old, and he took up residence in our neighboring Bridgeport at 129 West 6th Street. Having been paroled recently from the State Correctional Institution at Greaterford, barely four months before, Smith had been on a crime spree of monstrous proportions. On December 18, 1959, he stabbed and attempted to abduct a 17-year-old woman. On December 29, 1959, Smith accosted three 12-year-old girls in Phoenixville, grabbing one of them by their scarves and attempting to drag them into his vehicle. A shadowy night prowler was reported stalking the alleys of the backyards of Bridgeport. The 1947 strangulation murder of a five-year-old Carol Thompson in Worcester Township, still unsolved, was recalled as Smith. 
while never arrested for the crime, he had been the primary suspect. In one such account, a woman describes a brief encounter with Elmo Smith, whom apparently would stalk his victims from going door to door. Christine said, I was eight years old in 1959. My family was in the process of moving from Doylestown to Dublin, PA. Elmo Smith came to our door trolling for young girls. He came to the door, pulled out a roll of dollars, and asked my mother if she knew where he could find some girls. He offered to pay her with that info. We had a Great Dane dog that tried to break through the screen door and attack him. When my mother shut the door, he walked all around the house perimeter to try to find a way inside. To this day, I believe our dog saved us from him. I think he was casing the house to come back later at night and pick somewhere else because of that dog. We later identified him as the man at the door via his face being shown on TV. How's that for a connection? It was at this point during the recording of the podcast that I started to think to myself, how did Elmo Smith become associated with the Catman legend? After all, this happened in 1959, and in 2018, the story still articulated through my Facebook page when I asked you, Do you know the Catman? What was known about Elmo Smith? We knew he lived with his parents. He was a handyman. But how did he become associated with this legend? It was an interesting aspect to this podcast. How did fiction become attached to fact? How did the legend last more than 70 years? Perhaps it was something more. I decided to put the supernatural stuff aside and focus on the facts, the cold case, if you will. You see, on December 28, 1959, Elmo Smith murdered Mary Ann Mitchell. This one chance occurrence would cement his legacy in Montgomery County. Also, it would run tandem with the legend of the Catman. Mary Ann Mitchell was a junior at the Sicilian Academy Catholic School for Girls in West Mount Airy. She was just 16 years old. She also had a curfew and was encouraged by her father to not have a boyfriend. On that fateful evening, she was spotted three times. She visited her great aunt in Maniunk. She saw a movie at the Roxy Theater with three friends. This theater was destroyed in 1981 and sat at the corner of Leverington and Ridge Avenues. She ate hamburgers at Kohler's Kitchen with two friends. The restaurant is now Chubby's Cheesesteaks. Around 10.15 p.m., Mitchell walked to the corner of Henry Ave and Walnut Lane. She stood in the rain under a red and white umbrella and waited for the Route A bus to take her towards Maniunk. Her home was at 195 DuPont Street. Elmo Smith supposedly pulled up to the bus stop in a bronze and cream 1958 Chevrolet Bel Air. He asked Marianne Mitchell if she wanted a ride. She accepted According to Elmo Smith, he said, she said she'd like to have some fun. They drove to Conchahokan and parked. They had sex in the back seat, according to Elmo Smith. Using red lipstick, he drew on her body the letters TB, the numbers 101, and some strange circles. She became uneasy with the whole situation and asked Smith to take her home. He refused. He grabbed a nearby bumper jack and bludgeoned her in the head. He drove her body to the woods and dumped her alongside of the road after mutilating her body. For days, an army of 250 county and local authorities searched for the woods for Marianne. Along the way, several pieces of evidence began to show up across 10 square miles between Roxborough and White Marsh. In Philadelphia, 
Her tan handbag was found on the front lawn. A black dancing slipper trimmed with brass beads was found in the gutter. In White Marsh, her shoe was found two blocks from the body. And then in Bridgeport, a garter belt caked in dry blood and a pair of red speckled underwear were found near the railroad tracks. It was at this point that I received a phone call from my mother about Elmo Smith. You see, my grandfather passed away a few years ago, but he told my mother that on December 28, 1959, Elmo Smith came to him. You see, he was the chief of Washi's Fire Company in Conshohocken, and they had gasoline available out front. He claims that the 1958 two-tone cream Chevy appeared. Elmo Smith was fidgety. My grandfather refused to give him gasoline and wouldn't allow him to walk to the back of the car. It was a startling discovery for me as I ventured down deep into the hole of the Catman. On the afternoon of December 30th, 1959, a White Marsh Township highway worker was driving past the woods near Hart's Lane and Lafayette Hill when something peculiar caught his eye. The worker pulled over. After walking alongside a gully, he came upon something that shook him to the core, the body of Marianne Mitchell. Her dress ripped, stockings torn, underwear missing, face a bloody mess. Strange markings on her stomach, it was a ghastly sight to behold. She had multiple skull fractures, and there were signs of rape. She could only later be identified by the rings on her fingers by her father. Authorities had already compiled a list of suspects. At the top was Elmo Smith. Authorities knocked on Elmo Smith's door and interviewed him. They found several scratches on his body and bloody garments littered throughout his house, but no murder weapon. It wasn't until a separate incident helped crack the case wide open. Someone threw a rock in Bridgeport and hit someone in the head. They reported it to the police. When the police arrived, they searched the area. What they discovered was a two-toned 58 Chevy. Upon searching the vehicle, various blood stains, a prayer book with Marianne's name on it, and the bumper jack used in the murder were found. According to the Conshohocken Recorder, Elmo Smith was captured at a King of Prussia motel where he was occupied as a handyman. The room that he stayed in was number 101. The same numbers he wrote on Mary Ann Mitchell's body. After his photo appeared on television, three 12-year-old Phoenixville girls came forward. They recognized him as the stranger who had attempted to abduct them on December 27th, the day before Mary Ann Mitchell disappeared. After the girls picked Smith out of the lineup, he asked for his mother. On January 7th, after meeting with his mother and girlfriend, Elmo Smith confessed. The community was in shock. How could a terrible crime like this take place? During Smith's confession, many questions were brought up regarding the markings he left on Mary Ann Mitchell's body. Among the questions were, why the letters TB? What's the significance of the number 101? what about the strange circular drawings? What could they mean? The community was in shock. How could a terrible crime like this take place? During Smith's confession, many questions were brought up regarding the markings he left on Mary Ann Mitchell's body. Among them, why the letters TB? What's the significance of the number 101? What about those strange circular drawings? What could they mean? 
Records show that Elmo worked at a farm in Downingtown when he was younger. During his time there, he became infatuated with a young woman named Janice. Elmo described her as his girlfriend since childhood. However, she would soon grow feelings for someone else, eventually marrying him in her adult life. That man's name was Thomas Byerson, his initials, T.B. Janice Byerson told the police that on January 6, 1960, Elmo Smith visited her and gave her a Christmas present, a watch. Coincidentally, it was the same watch he had stolen from Teresa Briggs, the owner of the 1958 Chevy that was used during the crime. What about the other macabre markings on the girl's body? The number had no meaning according to Elmo Smith. However, the strange circular shapes were given new meaning by Montgomery County Assistant District Attorney Vincent A. Cirillo. He focused on the mysterious half-circle. He described it as a crescent moon with squiggly lines. He said it was the sign of St. Elmo, the patron saint of sailors. And a man with a strange name like Elmo would have to know something about that. A few questions. Why would Marianne Mitchell get into the car with Elmo Smith? All evidence suggests she was a straight-laced teenage girl who practiced abstinence, listened to her father, and honored her 10.30 curfew. Why would she willingly get into the car with Elmo Smith so close to 10.30? She had to be taken, right? Upon investigation, it was revealed that there was no signs of struggle at the corner of Henry Avenue and Walnut Lane. In his original testimony, Elmo Smith states she got into the car herself. Apparently, a few days after his arrest, he signed a 17-page confession and took the police along the murder route and reenacted the crime. Later, however, Elmo Smith would change his mind, stating that he was forced into making the confession, stating that he was scared to receive more beatings from the police. According to the Country Hawk and Recorder, in a news article dating from January 1960, Elmo Smith refused to take a lie detector test. He went to trial. It lasted 10 days. His mental health was evaluated and it was determined that he was not legally insane during the time of the murder. Marianne's mother took the witness stand to identify articles of clothing her daughter was wearing that fateful evening. She said, This is the shoes her daddy gave her. This is her scarf. I recognize the pattern. At the 10-day jury trial, Montgomery County Assistant Attorney Vincent A. Cirillo proposed a sequence slightly different than Smith's confession. He claimed Smith hit Mitchell in the head at the bus stop and dragged her into the car. He assaulted her, mutilated her body, and dumped her into the embankment. On September 1, 1960, a jury of nine men and three women took less than two hours to convict Smith of first-degree murder. The next day, after deliberating for less than an hour, the same jury condemned Smith to death. In April 1962, 42-year-old Elmo Smith is sentenced to death by electric chair. Coincidentally, it would be the last time that somebody was executed this way. Lethal injection became the norm after Elmo Smith's execution. One of the difficult things about recording this podcast was finding exactly where Mary Ann Mitchell's body was found. Several articles would tell me it was off Hart's Lane, it was near a gully, down an embankment, but there never was an exact location. I needed to know, especially since the urban legend of the Catman takes place on Manor Road. I decided to enlist the help of my father, who was 13 years old, in 1959. I picked my father up on a Saturday afternoon, brought along the microphone. I needed to know. 
and he was the man with the answers. This is the recording that afternoon. One of the things during my studies that was difficult to pinpoint was the exact location of the body of Mary Ann Mitchell. Oh, really? Some people said that it was uh, located on Hearts Lane. Some people said it was on Manor Lane. Some people said River Road. And lots of the newspaper clippings, they never actually said it. So I decided to pick up my father. He's here in the car with me as we're going to travel down Cedar Grove Lane to see where the body is. Dad, where, how did you know where the body was located? Well, I was 13 years old at the time, you know, there was pictures in the paper and everything. Times Herald had it, everything, and I always remembered going that way, you know, like going to Roxburgh or whatever. Every time we passed that area, I thought of her. So what was it like, how old were you in 1959? 13. What was it like hearing that story? Uh, pretty bad, you know. She was 16, she was three years older than me, and uh, I just felt bad for her, you know. But you didn't know her, right? She went to school in no, Roxbury. No, she went she to school from, in Roxbury, right? She was from Roxbury, yeah. So, like, did you were you aware that she was missing? Did you, were you aware of the manhunt? Uh, you know what? It's been so long ago, I can't recall that. So apparently, like, 250 people from the area were out there searching for her, and the strange thing was is that Elmo Smith, the supposed killer of Marianne Mitchell, had his had her clothing all around this area here. Several articles were found by different people, and then it was all linked back to her. The The odd thing is, is that the legend of the Catman, as it pertains to Elmo Smith, I'm finding out more and more, has little to nothing to do with one another. The Manor Road bridge that we'll also venture down to is where the legend takes place. And as, as far as like what my father's saying is that Marianne Mitchell's body was uh, the embankment that she was discovered at is an entirely different place. So um, we're making our way right now down Cedar Grove Road. We're coming past the Spring Mill Cafe, which coincidentally was also the same place that I learned how to play guitar for the first time from Mr. Bill Alberts, who's probably listening to this podcast. Roads are a little bit bumpy. The foliage is starting to change. The leaves are a spectacular green and yellow. There seems to be a large, I guess Spring Mill Cafe is having a Halloween trick-or-treater parade. People are walking in costume. This road's always been creepy, hasn't it? Yes. I don't know what it is about this road. You know, uh, Downtown Harvest started on this road. Chris Wood's house is right up here on up the here? right. Up yeah. okay. What's the name of this ski club right here? God, I Spring Mill, right? I know we had a good party there upstairs. Yeah, we did have a Something's good party there. Something's going on there now. It's all lit up. Somebody having a party? Yeah, upstairs. Road's a little bumpy. So we're coming up on it, right, Dad? Yes, almost. It's all grown here now. When, when this happened, it was just a picket fence there around it. Now it's like a lot of trees and... Well, let me ask you a question. You remember what it looks like in 1959. Yeah. Was it a good spot for him to do that? Or? Well, you couldn't see anything. You couldn't it was see down, anything. You know, like a valley. Like So how far down was her body? Oh, God. I don't I guess it was about eight feet, six feet, something like that. Six feet down. It was like, you know, yeah. like a, a ditch. Like. I wonder how that worker found her body. I mean, he said he just happened upon it. I don't know. I, you know, I, like I said, I was 13. That had to be scary. Yeah. Did you did you guys have a television then? Yes. Did you, did you see his face on the news? Yes. You did? I did. 
And I remember the night he went to the electric chair, night, April 2nd, 1962, I believe it was. Yep, that's correct. He was the last. Yeah, I was at the Fellowship House watching a basketball game. And uh, I can remember when that happened. All right, so we're coming up to the we're stop sign. We're coming up to the stop sign. You get to the stop sign, you're going to make a right. And as soon as you make that right, that's where it was. So this is Hart's Lane. Yep. The newspaper record, um, clippings do say that her body was discovered right here. So yeah, there's a steep incline as you make the right off Spring Mill. Sign saying narrow road. It's right down, right here, Bob. Man, so there's literally right on the side right of the road. Right there. See it? Now it goes down here. So her body was discovered right off down of, like, no more than 15 feet after you make that right-hand turn. Yep. So I guess uh, there was a fence here, a white picket fence. White picket fence, and none of this, you know, maybe the trees were there, but all the shrubbery, you could look down before. But that's where she was, down in there. The location of Marianne's body was a clear two and a half miles away from the Manor Road urban legend location of the Catman. Thanks, Dad, for coming on the Bobcast. I appreciate it. It was eerie to finally see where Marianne Mitchell was discovered. I was shocked how close it was to the main road. After becoming an expert on the Elmo Smith and Mary Ann Mitchell murders, I started to question whether all the information I was reading on the internet was true. More importantly, I was having trouble identifying the relationship of the Catman with Elmo Smith. When I initially set out to record this podcast, that was my main intent to uncover the Catman origin. What I discovered was something much, much more. A murder mystery years in the making. Brian McNamee told me about an author from the area who wrote a book on the Marianne Mitchell murder. To my surprise, her story was quite different than the one I just presented to you. Apparently, Everything I researched was false, according to my next guest. She's the author of Murdered Innocence, the Marianne Mitchell Murder Revisited. Please welcome Donna Persico. I appreciate you coming on the show. You know some mutual friends of mine. Um, I was doing a lot of studying this week on the, the case, and I came across your book. So please tell my audience, um, how did you first become involved with uh, the Marianne Mitchell Murder? She was murdered, and my father was a Philadelphia policeman, and Mary Ann Mitchell was a gal from our neighborhood, and although my father didn't work on the case, um, he was, he and some of our local policemen uh, started doing some research on their own into her murder, and uh, it always stayed with me from my childhood. So, like, as you started to write this book... Um, you know, the, if you go on Wikipedia right now and you type in Elmo Smith, you get the whole story about, you know, how he picked her up in a 58 Chevy, um, you know, took her down to Hart's Lane and murdered her. How did you start to, un, like, you know, uncover this, this other story in the book? Um, my father, there were certain things my father had uh, talked about, and one of them was the bus driver. And as I grew older... Um, I thought my father, this story never left me, uh, and I thought my, I wanted to see if my father was the only person who really felt 
that it was not Elmo Smith who murdered Marianne. I went down to the Review Archives, our local newspaper, and to see if they had any of the original articles, and lo and behold, they had all of the newspapers. They were in bound editions. You know, started reading through them. Also, I, we went to Gettysburg as the journey continued, and uh, that's how that all started. So, so we're talking about the Route A bus that Marianne would take uh, from her from Maniunk to, to Maniunk, actually, to her um, address on Dupont Street. So, tell us about um, the bus driver that was uh, on that bus. Um, there were three buses that night, and. Um, the bus driver who was on it uh, was a local fella that my father knew. Um, I don't give his name in the book. And for the second book, I'm debating on if I should give it or not. Oh, you are writing a second um, book right now. I, I am. The, the reason being, his um, one of his sons is alive still. And um, I don't know. I just, I don't feel good about giving his name while he's alive. I understand. It's totally fine. Um, so, I want to talk about more about this bus driver. So, I mean, like, in your book, do you believe that the bus driver is the one who actually murdered Marianne? Absolutely. My father, actually, that was his theory. He, he approached him uh, and said, you know, he believed he killed him and, the guy never spoke to my dad again, and being a Catholic, he never received communion again. Um, the guy, the bus driver. Wow. What was um, the bus driver's name? That's the name. That's I the name. Do. Okay. Okay. I understand. Um, so, so one of his sons is still alive. I understand now. Um, so this this bus driver. I mean, so Marianne gets on the bus. There's nobody else on the bus. I guess it's ten o'clock at night, right? Correct. And the other thing is, mm-hmm. and I've spoken to, and again, it's for part of the second book. My father's theory was that he simply put that the bus was out of um, out of service, put the notice in, drove her back to the terminal, and put her into the trunk of his car. Uh, and the supervisor that I've spoken to recently for the second book said, absolutely, that would be the easiest maneuver in the world to accomplish uh, because of the way the bus drivers came into the terminal at the end of their shifts. Wow. Um, all right, so, so okay, so he does this. He takes her into his car, um, the same location. Um, obviously, all the evidence that was around the area is discovered. So as I did all this research, I came across some conflicting reports. Some of them, I don't know if they've been, you know, elaborated upon or so, stuff like that. But what I did discover was that the 58 Chevy was discovered in Bridgeport, and the murder weapon was inside that. Well, I actually... It was the handle, it was the long part of the jack that they said Marianne was killed with. Mm-hmm. The murder car itself is debatable. Elmo Smith did not drive. Wow. He lived with his parents. He, they lived in Bridgeport. Um, the murder, it, it's a very complicated tale, but the murder weapon that they say was the murder weapon. I truly, seriously doubt was. I doubt it was the Jack. So, Elmo Smith, mm-hmm. I believe, was killed in the garage of the bus driver at his home on Silverwood Street. I don't think it was all a Mon- at all a Montgomery County crime. At all. 
Wow. Wait, say that Say that last part again. How, how do you believe it went down? I do not believe it was a Montgomery County crime at all, except for the fact that her body was left on Hart's Lane. Wow. So you believe it took place outside of Montgomery County? I believe it took place on Silverwood Street, and that's the first time anyone has ever heard me say that. Wow. Um, so all the evidence pointing towards Elmo Smith at the time, was it just because he... There was no evidence. Well, yeah. That was the joke. So when they went to his house, they didn't observe um, any uh, bloody articles of clothing or scratch marks on his body? They found a second... On a second search of the house, they found a new sock with blood on it Mm -hmm. in a trash can. On a second search... That information we found when we went to Gettysburg, and they were kind enough to show us all of the transcripts from the uh, trial and from what they had. Fascinating. A second search of his own. So I have never read that <laughs> in a trash can. How about that? So um, it, it, from what I've read, almost... He was, he was so made... By the way, the name of the second book is going to be Made to Fit. Mm-hmm. Um, he was truly made to fit this crime. Do you believe that he confessed to the murders because he was scared for his own life? Let me tell you this. Let me tell you this, Bob. His, his confession was written as a theory in a newspaper before they even found Elmo Smith. Wow. When Clarence Ferguson and all came up with the theory of the murder of Marion Mitchell, all of a sudden, they have, without Montgomery County's knowing it, they have a Montgomery County resident who they be, they are now going to believe killed her. Wow. So it, they make us all believe it. Because they wanted to catch the murderer because everybody was so scared at the time, I imagine. They wanted to catch somebody because Clarence Ferguson had a huge ego. And Clarence Ferguson he was, was? He's, he's the reason why Elmo Smith is dead. Wow. He was the investigator. He was in charge of special unit, um, special unit division of uh, the police department in Philadelphia. Oh, the Philadelphia section. Okay. So, Elmo, I, I read in different uh, articles that he refused to take a lie detector test, and then no, they wouldn't give him a lie detector test. That's an absolute fallacy. Wow. They wouldn't give him a lie detector test because he had confessed, and they felt there was no need for it. They didn't give him a lie detector test because it would have proven that the man was telling the truth, most likely. Now, is it true that he had a record before he was um, investigated for the murder of Marianne Mitchell? He had a what? Did he have a criminal record before? Absolutely, he right. did. He was blamed. The, the story of Elmo Smith in regard to Montgomery County goes way back. Way back. And there was something between his brother and him, a hatred, um, that I don't know enough about yet. I found some articles by Elmo Smith's mother Mm -hmm. when she was interviewed. Um, He was accused of every crime ever committed in Montgomery County (laughs) 10 years prior to Marianne's uh, murder. And... Again, in the second book, I'm working on that. Uh, I had the privilege of interviewing um, Peg Marklin, 
who was a young girl, Elmo Smith, was also accused of beating nearly to death. And a judge from Philadelphia called me up and said, hey, you have to go up to this nursing home. My wife's there. And he knew I had written the book, Murdered Innocence, this judge. And he said, Peggy Marklin, the girl that he, Elmo Smith, is accused of beating back in the day, is there. And her mind is as crystal clear as can be. Wow. So I went to the nursing home and visited and interviewed. I have the audio tape and I have the videotape. I interviewed Peg Marklin. And I said, Peg, what was the trial like? She said, Donna, there was no trial. I said, did you ever identify Elmo Smith as the man who beat you? I did not. Wow. Did your mother ever identify Elmo Smith? She did not. Yet, Elmo, Q, Elmo Smith was accused of beating her. And yes, he did go to jail for that. And then he was the last person to be put to death by the electric chair. He was. The other thing is, with Peg Marklin, they said they followed his car tracks from King of Prussia to Bridgeport in the snow. They followed snow tracks. When they got to his home, they took Elmo Smith out of his home, took him to Norristown Psychiatric Hospital, mm -hmm. gave him sodium pentothal. When he came out of the effects of the sodium pentothal, he said to the police, I need to call my wife. She doesn't know where I am, and I have a new baby. And they said, oh, no, you just confessed. <laughs> he was sodium pentothal, which is a truth serum. Mm -hmm. But he has had a very, it, his life was a tragic life, and if anybody was ever born just to die, it's him. He was born to die. Yeah. So, I mean, like, one of the things I did realize that when I was doing the studies is that, you know, the case wraps up pretty quickly. Like, she goes missing, they find her body, and then they pin it all on Elmo Smith. When you read through the information and you start to become accustomed with it, it, it seems as if, you know, it's easy to just assume that he did this crime. But after I had learned about your book and um, all the studies that you've done, it's it, it just it blows my mind, really, that this case still hasn't been solved. Um, and initially, I took this on because I wanted to study the urban legend. And I had no idea that the urban legend was associated with Elmo Smith and Mary Ann Mitchell. In your studies, do you have any idea how, for over 70 years, the, the urban legend has intertwined with the story of them? You know, I, it's funny because I grew up, um, our summer house was on River Road. Down, I've never heard Marion, but that's me. I've never heard her equate it with the urban legend of like Hookman or, I really didn't. You know, it's very it's strange because there's I have like right now there's it's like a sixty forty split, sixty percent of the audience right off the bat. As soon as I proposed the Catman, they were all talking about Elmo Smith, uh, Mary Ann Mitchell, and even just my father, um, who's seventy two years old. He told me he'd never heard about the Catman. He knew who Elmo Smith was, but he had right. no idea about the Catman. So well, I've heard of Catman. He was, to my knowledge, he was the trash. He was in charge. He was the uh, what you call it, trash dump, back on Manor Road. Tell me about that. Be, uh, I don't know much about it. I, ha I I have to tell you a little bit about me because it was an I've had an odd life. I was a nun for a long time, so a lot of the time when uh, the legends were coming to evolve, I was in the convent 
Mm. <laughs> so I left the convent, and, you know, I started hearing about the legends. You know, guys would go back, they'd go on dates back there, and girls would be found hanging, or the guy would be found hanging in the tree, and the girl escaped, and I don't know much about the legends. But I, I Mary and Mitchell, I believe that, it, that the only association between Elmo Smith and those legends is because she was found on Hart's Lane. Yeah, and you know, the odd thing during my studies, too, is like, I found out exactly where the body was uh, discovered, and it is at least three miles away from where the urban legend that most people tell takes place. It takes place on a bridge on Manor Road, so I, I, I'm trying, I'm, I'm still trying to reveal how this, this has happened. Um, it's kind of... The two, in my opinion, can't be equated. Yeah, that, really that's what I'm starting to, to understand now. It just, I mean, there's two there's two different things completely. So, Correct. But, the, the, you know, at the heart of it, though, I mean, there's an urban legend, and obviously it's Halloween time. People like to tell spooky tales. But what I was surprised the most about during this podcast was that, really, it's a tragic story. It's the story of a 16-year-old girl that uh, was tragically murdered as she, um, I guess, finished a, a meal with friends after seeing a movie. And yeah. um, Elmo Smith was um, charged with the crime and he was uh, executed. And then Correct. it goes even deeper that, you know, I mean, I, I received a, a message from my friend Brian McNamee. And he, sa he said, hey, you should talk to my friend Donna. She wrote a, a book on this. And then I did a quick Google search. And I was like, my God, Elmo Smith didn't do this. What was forensics like, like crime forensics um, in 1959? Were they, was the police accurate in the... Their evidence discovery? Oh, my goodness. Now, Agnes Maltrat, who worked for the Philadelphia coroner, Agnes Maltrat had claimed that she, you know, had her degree from Temple. She never even graduated from high school. Wow. She did the investigation along with Burke, who was in charge of the forensic unit for Philadelphia. She didn't even graduate high school. Wow. I mean, it was such. It, there was no DNA. There, you know, at that time, it, it had no value. Uh, even, you know, the lie detector would have helped back in the day had they done it, but they didn't want to give it because they wanted him to be the one blamed for this crime. It, it, I've spoken to Mr. Mitchell, uh, Mr. Mitchell's um, aunt's the half-sisters of uh, Marianne Mitchell's father, and even they said they do not believe Elmo Smith killed Marianne. Wow. It's it's an American tragedy. And you know what the saddest thing is? You can't erase it. You can't. She has a son, Elmo Smith, who is um, a little bit younger than me. And imagine your father's great legacy in life is that he is the last man executed in the state of Pennsylvania for the murder of a 16-year-old girl. It's terrible. And it's a shame as a society that we can't undo that. The tragic thing can. is this continues to happen. I mean, maybe not so much anymore with technology and how far it's advanced with our forensics, um, but it, it, it's just sad. It's a, it's a sad, awkward feeling. It's, you know, like... As I did this study and uh, I was getting into the supernatural aspects of it, I kept going back to the concrete cold case, really, and the concrete facts, um, how quickly it happens. And, I mean, one of the things that I just couldn't understand was why, in your opinion, I'll ask you, why was there evidence scattered throughout 
they say Roxborough and Maniunk, like, you know, 10-mile radius. Is, th- is that true, or was that something that was made up? There was no evidence. Let me tell you something. The guy who I believe did it lived on Silverwood Street. He lived within a couple, a few blocks of Marion Mitchell's home. Mm-hmm. All right? They found a shoe on the ridge. They found her purse thrown over up near, uh, uh, what's the name of Skip's place? Near Sign Printers. Mm-hmm. In the book, I give all the addresses. They found all this stuff that belonged to Marion Mitchell. They found her purse. They found her wallet. They found she had two pairs of shoes. She had the shoes she was wearing and a pair of flats that she was dancing in because they had been to a dance the night before. That's, those items were thrown by the bus driver. One of the studies that my father and his friends who are police officers, one of the things they did, uh, her... Her uh, shoes, one set of them, were found at the top of the corner of where the, uh, uh, what's it called now, the Ace Center, Eagle Lodge. Mm, Chubb. It was found at the top of the corner, the Chubb Center, mm-hmm. where, um, is it Manor Road or Hearts? That's, that's Manor Road, yeah. Right, where Manor Road and Ridge intersect, the, the corner of, of the Chubb Center. My dad and these policemen went out to see if it was possible in any way at that time because of the elevation to throw objects up there if you were driving. It's impossible. They were tossed out of the bus Mm -hmm. by the bus driver as he drove, you know, a day later. it's, It's sad. And she didn't die right away. She didn't die on the 29th. Oh, she didn't? She didn't find her body... Until, or she didn't die on the 28th. They found her body on the 30th. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know... So, are, do, you, do you think that this bus driver, this unnamed bus driver, you think that he, he knew her? Like, he knew her on her first name basis? If he lived I think cl- he knew most of the kids from the neighborhood because the kids would go to the... You know, I don't know if he knew her on a first name basis. Yeah, but do you, do you think it's a possibility that he... he Cased her, he stalked her for a little bit before no. he. No. Uh-uh. Do you? It you wasn't that at all. So you think that he this was, was a like, very odd. Mm-hmm. He was an odd fellow anyway. Yes. Uh, and the bus drivers at that time didn't want to go into Montgomery County. They didn't want to leave Philadelphia because it was like, uh, you know, it wasn't developed. Mm-hmm. It was like going into a foreign country. And here, a bus driver, right before Miriam Mitchell had been murdered. There was a bus driver who was robbed at gunpoint on the Barren Hill on that line. Wow. And I have not been able to prove that it was the bus driver that drove the night with Miriam Mitchell. But he was made to continue his route. The supervisors from, from the, the um, not SEPTA, PTC. Wow. Made him finish his route. And he got away with it. It's just an eerie, eerie thought that you know. I mean, as I did the research, you know, I I knew about the bus stop. I, I you know, I was so focused on a '58 Chevy that I didn't didn't even think about public transportation and you know how if there's nobody on that well, here bus. Here we go, Bob. Here we go. Let's think about this. The the two girls. One of the girls walked home. All right, and the two girls that were with Marianne. 
you know, down down getting the cheap the food, um, at Kohler's Kitchen, which is now Chubby's. That bus stop, people think it was up the corner of Ridge and Walnut Lane, right at the corner. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It was right up across from Chubby's. And there's still a bus sign there. Yeah. All right, so the two girls stayed on the chubby side of Henry Avenue while Mary Ann, carrying an umbrella, a purse, walked across to the bus stop. Mm-hmm. The two girls that were with her saw the bus coming. They could not say for sure that they saw Mary Ann get on, but they saw the bus coming and then she wasn't there. Right now, listen wow. to me. Yeah. The only interview that the police did of the bus drivers that night was to ask them if they had picked anyone up. Oh my God. The three, and this is published in newspapers. The three drivers said no. Okay, so we accept that. Fine, thanks, fellas. Is that not strange to you? It's very strange. It's alarming. The girl said that, so either the bus driver saw her get abducted. And drunk into a car, or she got on the bus. Somebody knew something, yeah. So and there were fellas that were out at Shocks, which was the gas station at the other, on the on the, um, the corner, yeah. Polar Tubby side. All right, those fellas were out, and they were cleaning up because it was a rainy night. They were mopping, you know, the islands. They heard nothing. They heard no screams. They saw no cars. They heard no cars. So everybody else, you know, these are the things that, that, you know, we were given a story, and we just believed the story. But there's so much more to it. And like I said, we can't do one, we can't undo that we killed him. It's true. Um, It's alarming, too. Um, This bus driver that remains unnamed, did he live a full life? He lived the life, but guess what? His youngest son, who grew up with me, um, was crushed by a septibus. Wow. Isn't karma a bitch? Jesus. Odd. So, currently you're working on your second book. I am. Um, any idea when that book can come out? No idea. That's okay. I, <laughs> I know- don't know if you know this, but I, I do the review archives. Oh, you do? Up in Oh, yeah, wow. I, I'm the administrator of them. Fascinating. So, and the only reason our community has, we digitize the archives. Mm-hmm. The only reason our community even has the archives, because the review moved from Roxborough, is because of Miriam Mitchell. Wow. Because that's how I found out they existed. And what year was that? Uh, we are in our seventh year. Uh, it was... 2011? 2012. Wow. It's fascinating stuff. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, um, you know, opening the case up because, you know, with with most stories, there's always two sides to it or sometimes three or sometimes four. Um, The book is Murdered Innocence, the Marianne Mitchell Murder Revisited. Don, I really appreciate you coming on the show and um, explaining things to me. It's really opened my eyes. Okay, Bob. Well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. After hearing Donna's story... I was rattled to the bone. How could this be? Will we ever know the true identity of the bus driver? I couldn't shake it. I started to dream about the murders. 
My mind was in a thousand different places. When Donna's new book comes out, perhaps we might uncover some new discoveries. But until that time, we just have to wait. If you'd like to read her book, I've attached a link below here in this podcast. So what about the cat man? How does Elmo Smith and Marianne fit into this popular urban legend? My studies took me in a whole new direction. I often wondered, why did the Catman have a hook? I started to think back. I started to go through history and American folklore. What does the hook represent? And why Catman? Was there a relationship with the Schuylkill River's infamous catfish? I needed to know. And I found answers. According to folklorist and historian Jean-Harold Bronvard, the story began to circulate sometime in the 1950s. The first known publication of the story occurred on November 8, 1960, when a reader letter telling the story was reprinted in Dear Abby. An American advice column founded in 1956 by Pauline Phillips under the pen name Abigail Van Buren and carried on today by her daughter, Jean Phillips, who now owns legal rights to the name. The article reads as, Dear Abby, if you are interested in teenagers, you will need to print this story. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it doesn't matter because it served its purpose for me. A fellow and his date pulled into their favorite lover's lane to listen to the radio and do a little necking. The music was interrupted by an announcer who said there was an escaped convict in the area who served time for rape and robbery. He was described as having a hook instead of a right hand. The couple became frightened and drove away. When the boy took his girl home, he went around to open the car door for her. Then he saw a hook on the door handle. I will never park to make out as long as I live. I hope this does the same for other kids. Jeanette. Several other versions began to circulate throughout North America at this time. Such as, the couple drive through an unknown part of the country late at night and stop in the middle of the woods because either the male has to relieve himself or the car breaks down and the man leaves for help. While waiting for him to return, the female turns on the radio and hears the report of an escaped mental patient. She is then disturbed many times by the thumping on the roof of the car. She eventually exits and sees the escaped patient sitting on the roof, banging the male's severed head on it. Another variation has the female seeing the male's butchered body suspended upside down from a tree with his finger scraping the roof. Another version is the man does return to the car only to see his date brutally murdered with a hook embedded in her. In other versions, the woman gets out of the car when her date doesn't come back, only to see his mutilated body either on the car's roof, nailed to a tree, or just a few short steps away. But as she starts to panic, she runs into the maniac, and she too gets killed. Why did this story resonate? How is it that this story is still told almost 70 years later? Some say urban legends are a direct result of postmodern consumer culture. 
Alan Dundee studied folklore in depth and claimed that the legend of the hooked man was Freudian in nature, claiming that the hook represented a phallic symbol, its amputation a symbolic castration of sorts. American folklorist Bill Ellis interpreted the maniac in the hook as a moral custodian who interrupts the sexual experimentation of young people. He sees the hook man's handicap as his own lack of sexuality, and the threat of the hook man is not the normal sex drive of teenagers, but the abnormal drive of some adults to keep them apart. Could it be that the urban legend of the hook man slowly started to merge into our version of the cat man? In all our stories, the Catman has a hook and performs stunts similarly described by the Dear Abby article published in 1960, a year after Mary Ann Mitchell's death. Perhaps in the late 1950s, without the use of the internet, stories like this started to spread. Perhaps in dining cars, or dark smoky clubs, or perhaps this story was told by parents to scare their kids out of having sex. An abstinence urban legend story, if you will. What is known? Many of you have stories about the Catman. Some of you graciously shared them with me on social media. Here's a few of the stories I'd like to share. Carly Bondra. When we were kids, my dad, Carmen, used to drive us down the road and tell us about the Catman who lived there. He would then pretend that the car was running out of gas. He'd flicker the headlights and tap on the accelerator to act like the car was dying. He'd say, oh my God, guys, the car is dying. Oh no, wait, I think I hear something. And then he would slide his hand out of the window and pound on the roof of the car. I just remember hiding on the floor of the passenger seat nearby, crying. He would specifically drive down that road just to scare the shit out of us, and it worked. I still believe in the Catman. Drew Sulak, the story I heard growing up was the guy lived with like a hundred cats, and the house burned down. Then the spirits of the cats went into his body, and he became the Catman. Stephanie Liebert. I remember going off manor onto a side road that wasn't paved, we had to hold up a chain gate to drive under it, up a little dirt road, and I just remember my radio stations changing from one to another. I don't remember whose car I was in. It could have been mine for all I remember. Carolyn Bondra. I had someone hide in the bed of a pickup when I was a teenager. When we got on Catman's Lane, my boyfriend turned the lights off and the guy jumped out of the truck bed and slid down the windshield. It scared the shit out of me. Jennifer Schnell. One night I went to Catman's Lane with three friends in high school. We decided to park the car and walk up what was supposed to be Catman's driveway. We heard a loud pop and ran back to the car to see what it was, and the car was on fire. Fire trucks and police came. I don't think we ever found out the cause of the fire but that was my last time playing around on Catman's Lane. LOL. Mel Oliveri, a blast from my past. Went parking there sometimes, but were always too scared to do anything. LOL. Heard scratching in the roof and back of the car. 
One time we turned on the car lights and something flashed in front of us. <laughs> this is unknown from the internet. There's a road that's pretty scary in a town near where I was born. It's in Conshohocken, PA. It's nicknamed Catman's Lane, but its real name is Hart's Lane. There was a guy back in the early 60s named Elmer or Elmo Smith, if I remember correctly, who ran into the woods there and hid out for two weeks. He went nuts and murdered his wife and children. When he was found, he had long fingernails and hair all over his face, which is how he got the nickname Catman. It's a cool road to freak people out on. But one night I was up there, taking a little blaze ride with my two friends. It's a really curvy road, so you can't really see around the turns. And it's next to a large hill above a cliff that drops about 80 feet to a river. When we were driving along, we were turning the lights on and off, just freaking each other out while we were blazing, trying to see who would get scared. Anyway, we had our lights off as we crept around a turn, and as soon as we got to the apex, my friend who was driving turned his high beams on really quickly, and there was some lady in the middle of the street right in front of us. Good thing we were only doing about 10 miles per hour, so we had the reaction time to stop, but our hearts were in our throats and the lady wouldn't move. She just kept walking slowly, and we drove around her. We never thought to ask anything of her because it was too scary at the time. I wonder what the hell she was doing up there. Michelle Bondi Stingle. During our high school years, we would load up our car and drive on Catman's Lane at night and turn off the lights. Then everyone would get out and circle around the car before getting back in. We were so scared. Kate Blue, all the parts I remember from Kwan involved a man with super long nails, a storyteller scraping a stick on a cement block as they talked for awesome special effects, and some unfortunate person discovered by their girlfriend hanging from a tree by their entrails. So much cooler than saying intestines. Oh, so much cooler. Joe Kim for kicks. Andy Gorchoff and I would drive down the lane at night, shut off our headlights, and turn on the interior lights and play a twisted game of chicken with ourselves. We'd see how far we would drive without crashing or until one of us screamed to turn on the lights. Heather Rondazzo. That's similar to the stories I heard. I also heard he hung skinned animals from trees there. I was always scared to death of Catman's Lane. Dana, oh my God, Catman. The legend I heard was that a psychopathic patient escaped from Narstown State Hospital. He killed a family with his hook on Hart's Lane. If you stop at the bridge, turn your lights off and beep three times, he appears. Used to be in the 90s, there would be a campfire and sleepover. Of course, Catman would be on the prowl and would have everyone screaming and up all night. You know, black streaks through the woods and yowling and sometimes even black fur sighted, depending on the year. John. So my mom told me about this story and I read up on it. I never heard about it before. According to my mom, my grandfather, Russell Blue Carfagno, who was a Narstown detective, worked on the case. Elmo Smith was married at Holy Savior Church in Narstown, where my mom has worked for over 30 years. They have all the records of marriages and baptisms. Anyway, she said it was crazy time. Not sure how it morphed into Catman, but this story, the real one, 
is insane. Mr. Dean, we were told about a block away there is a bridge where one night a young couple came to make out in their car on the bridge or near the bridge under a large tree. While making out in the car, they heard a large thump on the top of their car. In a panic, the woman yelled, What was that? Her boyfriend started screaming, and something was slicing or clawing its way through the roof of the car. The driver got out and claimed he saw a man-like person with large nails and a hairy cat face attack his girlfriend. In conclusion... What have we learned during this podcast? Is there any relationship between Elmo Smith and the urban legend of the Catman? Our community seems to think so. As we dove deep into the mystery of the murder of Marianne Mitchell, spoke with Donna, it is clear to me that this podcast will have to continue one day. There's just too many answers left to be uncovered. In conclusion, I wanted to put the urban legend of the Catman to the test. So one night, I ventured out in my car to the infamous bridge on Manor Road. This is the recording. Check one, two, check, check, check one, two, check, 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 check. Check one, two. Okay, it's 11, 11 p.m., Late night, about to turn onto Manor Road here. Get to the bridge. It is dark, it is cold. There's nobody on the road. Um, trying my radio right now. Let's see here. Put this to the test, see if I can still pick up. That's a little bit loud. Hold on one sec here. Radio seems to be working fine. All right, let's just do the real test here. Let's come up. All right, coming to the bridge. Here's the graffiti that I saw as a kid. I'm stopping my car on the bridge. Putting it in park. Turning my engine off. my horn three times it's quiet I don't hear anything I'm a little nervous just because it's dark I don't want somebody to come up behind me and hit my car do you hear that <laughs> 